Well, good morning again. It's good to be back with you all. The children at this time are dismissed uh, for Children's Church. I see they're already running out. Uh, so, uh, for those who were here last week, I am the same preacher. I did get a haircut, though, uh, so I might look a little different. Uh, so, my name is Brian Fowler. Uh, glad to be with you guys last week, this week. Uh, we uh, looked through a parable last week, uh, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. We're looking at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The deal is I preach any text in the Bible as long as it's 1 through 13. That, that's, that's my thing. So uh, it just happens that these two parables we're looking at uh, come, come in this form to us. So uh, today's parable uh, in Matthew 25, just to give us a bit of context before we uh, start in our reading, uh, comes at, obviously at the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, this actually is in a series of four parables. This is the second in the series of, of Jesus' last parable, his last public teaching. He just taught in Matthew 24 uh, about the signs of the time, about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the coming of the Son of Man. He then teaches four parables right in a row that gets us into Matthew 26. Uh, where we have the Lord's Supper instituted, we have the betrayal of Jesus, uh, Matthew 27 is Jesus' crucifixion, uh, and then his resurrection. So this is at the end of Jesus' ministry, and, and one of the four last parables that he's going to teach us, and what we want to see today is what is Jesus impressing on us as he finishes out his earthly ministry? What does he want us to know about his kingdom and especially about his kingdom as it relates to that future kingdom, the consummation that will come as he comes in the second time. So Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1, uh, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. But uh, but at midnight there came a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there is not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour." Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. God, we ask as we come to your word this morning that you would bless us through your word. Uh, God, we want to know more of your kingdom. We want to know more of your grace. We want to know more of your love. May you lift us up, lift our spirits today as we have heard your word, uh, as we are about to hear it explained. Uh, God, may you work through us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I did bring my family this week uh, with me, uh, and just to, for you all to know, quick introduction to us, I have three kids, my oldest Will is eight, uh, and then Leland is six, I know there's another Leland here as well, uh, and then my daughter Rosie, uh, who's three. 
Uh, and all three of my kids, like me, are stubborn. In fact, the summation of their stubbornness equals to about half of my stubbornness, I would say. Uh, so my wife has her hands full between me and the three kids. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, actually uh, back in June, I was in Birmingham for a chaplain training prior to General Assembly. Uh, and when I'm out of town, I like to go running. Uh, and while I was running in Birmingham, uh, in case you don't know, it's not like here. There's a bit of hills. And I enjoy running on hills, but I mean, I have not run hills in a long time. And I get into this neighborhood, and I'm running, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm on all these hills. I'm going up for like half a mile. I'm just worn out. And as, a, as someone who grew up running cross-country, I, I, I like to run. I like to run new places. And I, you know, have this feeling in my stubbornness and my hard-headedness. I kind of know what I'm doing. Uh, and so I'm running in this neighborhood where I, I have never been in before, obviously. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. I've only been to twice in my life. And I'm running this neighborhood, and, and as a runner, I know that, that the road I left was a main road, and I could hear the noise of the cars. And so the road I'm trying to get back to is this main road. Uh, and so I'm running, and I'm running through all these hills. I'm you know, wearing myself out. I'm like, I, you know, I can't do this anymore. Uh, and and I'm, I'm hearing this noise off in the distance of this main road. Uh, well, I find a guy, he's walking on the sidewalk. I say, hey, where's the main road at? He says, oh, you, you're, just, you're almost there. Just go up this way. So I go up to it. It's the wrong main road. Uh, so I come back. I find him again. I said, hey, you know, I, I realize I, that's not the main road I'm looking for. Where's, where's the main road? He says, oh, well, you've got to go this way. You know, I'm just looking for a target. Well, you've got to go down this way, uh, and, and, and you're going to find the target down there. Well, I go down that road, and it's not the main road I'm looking for. All of a sudden, I wind up in the middle of nowhere, and I'm like thinking, how am I ever going to get back? It's a Sunday morning. I've got to get to church. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And pretty soon I realized, you know, what I thought I knew in my mind, I thought I had a good understanding of these roads and how to run in new areas, but I didn't have the map laid out in my mind. In fact, I thought that that was on, you know, had left one main road, and I could just go back to that one, but it turns out I was in a neighborhood where there were four main roads around it. And the road I was running to was nowhere near the road I needed to be at. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, you and I oftentimes find ourselves, whether it's running on the streets in Alabama, uh, whether it's raising our children, choosing our careers, deciding where to live, we find ourselves in these positions where we think we have all the answers. Where we think we have this map laid out for ourselves in our mind, if I do this thing, if I complete this program, if I make this next move, Everything's going to work out in the way I want it to. But if we're honest with ourselves, is, is the map that we have in our minds, is the understanding that we have as we live in this life and in this world, the understanding that we need? Is it the understanding that, that Jesus gives us is the path, another way to say that, is the path that we're on, the path that God has designed for us? And Matthew 25 is one of those moments where Jesus is raising that question to us. He's saying, what is leading you today? What's guiding you today? What's the thing that you're seeking after? What's the thing that you're desiring with your life that you're running towards and you're running after? And, and, and what Jesus would want to impose upon us today is that the thing that must be central for us is God's eternal grace. That that must be at the very center for each of us, and it must direct our present lives as we look towards God's eternal hope in the future. 
that what must direct us, what must be the map that is set before us is, is God's eternal grace, His eternal purpose for us, and that's going to direct our present lives as we head into the future, into eternity. Now, there is a good friend of mine, Herman Ritterboss, a Dutch theologian, uh, who in his understanding, his assessment of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, he said that, that we're always living in the midst of three eras. The era of the kingdom that has come in Jesus' life, in his death and his resurrection, when Jesus came, when we read the Gospels, we see the kingdom has come. But Herman Ritterboss says there's also two other eras. There's the era that we live in now, the kingdom is coming, which will be completed, and the kingdom will come, the full consummation. The other way we put that is that we live in the already, and we're looking towards the not yet. That we're here in the already, and we're looking towards the not yet. And so what we want to think about today is what does it mean to live in the already as we look towards the not yet? Because Jesus would say to us that we really if we understand correctly where we stand in history, we're all on the edge of eternity. And we're all in this journey together. As Jesus has already, consu- as he's already brought his kingdom and he's looking towards that consummation. And he's inviting us in on this journey. And we want to look at this journey together that he describes in Matthew 25 in three ways today. We want to look at the three aspects as, as we sit here in the already looking at God's eternal hope, and as we think about how that directs our present lives into the future, Jesus invites us on this journey, but he says there's three aspects to this journey. There's the danger of being unprepared. There is the joy that we have in the midst of this journey, and there's the hope of the completion of this journey. So let's look at those three things together today. First, the danger of being unprepared. So this story uh, is about these uh, ten virgins who are on their way to this wedding feast. Uh, there's a kind of a little bit of um, you know, digging we need to do. It's a little bit confusing. Are these uh, ladies, these ten ladies, about to marry this guy? Most commentators say, no, that's not what's happening here. He's marrying someone else. They're kind of part of this bridal party. Either they know the groom, they know the bride. Uh, but we're here in a Jewish bridal ceremony. And there's this kind of journey they have to go on. Uh, the, the, the marriage is happening somewhere. They have to go to a house. We don't know why. Uh, they have to get to that house, wait for the bridegroom, and then he's going to bring them into the wedding. Uh, now, this is not a normal Jewish wedding feast, but this is the one that Jesus gives us. And this is what's going on. He says there's these 10 young ladies, and they're waiting to go into this wedding feast altogether. Now, as we see, as, as these Ten ladies are preparing for this journey. It says in verse 3 and 4 what the distinction is between the two groups. It says two identical sentences uh, with one change in the midst of it. It says there was the foolish virgins, and they took their lamps with them, but they didn't have any oil. They didn't have any additional oil. But then there was the wise virgins, and they took lamps with flasks of oil as well. And that's what distinguishes these two groups. What we want to notice as well is If you jump down then to verse 5, it says that all of them became drowsy and fell asleep. And in verse 7, that all of them needed to be awoken. And also we want to understand that all of them were on this same journey, but the distinction between these two groups is one of them was on this journey 
hoping in the end of this journey, hoping in the final consummation of this journey, while the others were there just for themselves. What Jesus is saying here in this danger of being unprepared is that the wise virgins fixed their hope on the end of the journey while the foolish virgins found their satisfaction in what's right in front of them. In other words, the foolish virgins are a bunch of millennials, right? I can say that because I'm a millennial myself. Uh, the foolish virgins, as one famous pastor, uh, TV uh, pastor um, in, in Houston says, uh, were l- looking for their best life now. They didn't want the, the challenge of, of bringing along this extra oil. They didn't want to see the hope of the journey in its completion. They wanted the ease and the comfort of what is right in front of them. They wanted to live for what is presently in their possession, what's presently in their hands. And they didn't think about that this journey actually requires something of them, that this journey actually is motivated by a hope, that this journey has a need for a preparation. They didn't want to think about any of those things. They only wanted to live for what they could see in front of them. And Victor Hugo's uh, play, his um, novel Les Mis, uh, there is this scene kind of towards the beginning of, of, the, of the movie, of the play, uh, where Jean Valjean, uh, the main character, uh, he has been in prison, uh, he's been released from prison, uh, and, and, he, um, and this guy Javert, who was the guard in prison, is kind of always pursuing him, looking after him uh, in the film. Well, Jean Valjean uh, goes uh, to a priest's house. He steals the silver from the priest's house. Uh, but the priest forgives him. And he gives him that silver, and then he starts this new life for himself. Well, he's living this new life. He's a mayor of this community in France. And then all of a sudden, Javert shows back up in town. And he says, Jean Valjean, there, there's, you know, he kind of figures out who he is. He says, there's this terrible thing that's happened. This prisoner... Prisoner 24601, Jean Valjean's number, has wound up in town and he's about to face trial uh, because they found out that he didn't go to his parole. Well, Jean Valjean knows that those things are true of him. And he's faced with this crisis. What do I do? Do I let this innocent man suffer or do I come into the courts? Do I stand up and, and, and declare my identity, who I really am? And, 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 you know, he goes in this great song, I won't sing it here from the pulpit, but, you know, he's, he's going into this song and struggling over this reality. What do I do? Do I do what is right? Or do I do what's easy? Do I do what's convenient? And he ultimately lands on that he has, he must do what is right. He must go in and declare his true identity. He must go and declare to the courts, no, you have the wrong Man, Now that you know, makes him, for the rest of the play, for the rest of the movie, he's on the run. But that's the decision that's before him. That's the decision that's before us. Do we do what's right or do we do what's convenient? In our work, do we only give what is required of us? Do we only give the bare minimum? Or do we consider our work as a service to God and a service to others? giving our our fullness of ourselves to our work? Do we pray over our work? Do we pray over our families, realizing that this is our calling from God? Are we honest with with our abilities when we can't fully get everything done, when we can't accomplish the task of force? Are we honest in saying, look, 
you know, this is not cut out for me? Do we, do we give ourselves the opportunity to fail? Do we give ourselves rest? Do we give others rest? How do we grapple with the commandments of Jesus? How do we grapple with the life that Jesus calls us to, the obedience that he calls us to by faith, and living out in, in the vocations where God has placed us, the vocations where God has called us to? Do we see our faith as just something that we confess with our lips or also something that's practiced in our lives, as our confession would say? Do we see the two sides of our faith? Do we see how we must not just believe it, in a sense, by giving you know, service to it with our lips, but in believing it, we must live it? That we must follow in obedience to Jesus. That we must live, as we turn to now, this life that is marked by preparedness. This life that is not only marked by preparedness, but is marked by joy. As Jesus would say to us here in this parable. This life that is marked by joy. Because we see this, these other virgins, the wise virgins, that they, as they set out on this journey, have their hopes set in the end of the journey. And, and they make this preparation, they bring along these extra flasks of oil. Now, you think about this just for a second, okay? I said, this is kind of a weird wedding ceremony in, in its day. And even in our day, you know, I, I was, you know, coming out, preparing to go to Smithfield today. Me and my daughter were uh, filling up a uh, gas tank at 7-Eleven for our lawnmower. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm driving out to Smithfield. I had half a tank of gas, which is way more than enough to get to Smithfield and back, just to let you know. Uh, from Virginia Beach, but I'm like, you know, I'm just going to fill up the tank, just in case, right? You know, just in case we get stuck in traffic or something, whatever. You know, that's how these virgins were. You know, not only did they fill up, the, we're going to a wedding feast in Richmond, and I'm not only going to have a full tank, I'm going to have, you know, a hundred gallons sitting in the back of my car, just in case I can't make it there. I mean, that's kind of how ridiculous this scene is. And yet, as, you know, what happens the bridegroom is delayed for some reason. He comes at an hour that, that no one expected him to come. And when he shows up, well, the wise virgins don't look so foolish after all, do they? Because they're prepared for the end of that journey because they set their hopes on getting there into that wedding feast. And not on the present. And not on what's before them. They were looking for what was at the end. The, the wise virgins find their hope in God's eternal promises. As Mike Allen says in his book, Grounded in Heaven, hope for what God has promised tomorrow shapes our lives today. What, what Jesus is calling us to here in Matthew 25, what he's showing us here with these virgins, is that hope in God's purposes, hope and God's promises should shape our lives, should be the shape of how we live. And, and what does that look like in the text? Well, we see the greatest example of evangelism in the Bible. The foolish virgins say to the wise, give us some of your oil. They say, no, go away, right? I mean, that's what happens in the text here. But, you know, we're not looking to this text for a model of evangelism, but we're looking for a model of life, a life that does involve evangelism, because it is tricky as we look at this and we say, hey, that's not really Christian charity, is it? They turned them away. They asked for help. They said, no, go get your own. But what's Jesus really laying at our feet here? What's he really challenging us with here? He's saying, what is the hope of your life and how does that shape how you live? How does that shape how we go throughout this world? 
how does that, this response of the virgin, they're saying, look, we are hoping so much in heaven that that's going to shape everything we do. In other words, what, what Jesus is calling us to is this life that's shaped by heaven. We, we see this explained, and we've got to read this parable within the context, as I said, is Jesus giving four parables back to back to back here at the end of his ministry. And the very last parable he gives at the end of Matthew 25 is a famous parable. All the parables are pretty famous, but this one is you know, immensely famous, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Where again there are two groups of people, and again this declaration comes from heaven, depart from me, I never knew you. But what distinguishes those two groups there at the end of Matthew 25 and verse 40? He says, it's what you did for the least of these, you did for me. What you did for the least of these, you did for me. What you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. What distinguishes them, what distinguishes their life, what distinguishes their hope, is how they entered into service of God and of others. How their life was shaped by the service of God and others. How their life was shaped by this hope that led them in to fulfilling God's purpose. To being in, you know, in relationship in God's love and then loving others. And that's what Jesus is saying for us here. He's saying, look, how is your life shaped by this hope? How do you make room for people who don't act, look, and smell, and think like you? Do you make room in your life, in your work, in your sphere of influence for people who have disabilities, for people who have neurodiversities? Do you make room for service to the poor? Do you make room for what Jesus calls us to there at the last parable? In Matthew 25, this life that's lived in service to others. He says, is that the life that that we possess? Is that the life that we have? Now, my kids and I, uh, we enjoy uh, watching sometimes on YouTube. We got the chance to do it this week, uh, watching flash mobs. Uh, now, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but you know it's this, this wonderful cultural phenomenon where people are at a shopping mall, they're at a public square, whatever, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, some, the National Symphony comes in or Coldplay comes in, Chris Martin, the lead singer, you're eating at a restaurant, and, you know, some uber-famous person walks up there and puts on this concert right in front of you. And, and what I love about them so much is, is how you could just, you know, be shopping, eating at a food court, and all of a sudden, this performance comes in right in front of you. And it totally lifts that moment and totally, you know, changes the whole, the whole aura of that experience. You know, I'm here shopping and, and all of a sudden there's this great symphony that's playing. And, and it lifts the mood and everyone starts smiling, everyone starts participating and dancing and singing along. And, and what Jesus is saying to us here. As he's saying, look, this is what this life of service is like, because you see that at times, right? This, this reality of heaven breaking into these normal moments. I'm praying over something at work. I'm praying over something in my family. And God comes there and he delivers, right? I mean, we don't know a God who never answers, who never does anything. Sometimes life is hard, absolutely. Oftentimes life is hard. But there are these little glimpses, these breadcrumbs, where we know and we see heaven breaking in to the present, where we see this joy in the journey as we live a life for God and a life for others, that we see him move in our relationships. Because this was the, the hope 
of the martyrs. This was the hope of the reformers. This was the hope of the church. This was the hope of, of the Dr. King and those in the civil rights movement. When he said that speech, I have a dream, what's he talking about? Isaiah 60. That God's reality will be breaking into our present lives. That we're hoping for this day when God's kingdom and our earth collide. That we're hoping for this joy that God promises when he moves, when he comes. When he makes himself known in our lives. That's the joy that we get to experience in service to God and service to others. That's what Christ is calling us. He's calling us to a life that is difficult, yes, that's full of suffering, yes, but that's also full of joy. That's also marked by hope. That's pointed towards the heaven's eternal shores and, and guided in that direction. And we get to experience his joy along the way. Which brings us to our final point, the completion of that journey. The completion of that journey that is grounded in this hope we see at the very end of the parable. Uh, and while they were going in verse 10 to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut afterwards. The other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, this is a hard text to read, but it's also a joyful text to understand because there is this reality, there is this final consummation, there is this moment where God's agenda of mercy to a fallen world will be done as he will bring about his final judgment. He has declared it here in the text. He's declared it so many places in the scripture that this is true. That Jesus will come and he will bring his judgment. But what is also true in that reality is that those who have placed their life in Christ will not experience judgment, but will be welcomed in will not experience that, that answer, I do not know you, but will be welcomed in, well done, good and faithful servant. And what we need to see here in the text, what we need to note here is, what really distinguishes these two groups? You know, did the wise virgins come in because, well, they're better than the other virgins? Do they come in because they're more moral, because they're more prepared? Well, we could say in the text, well, yeah, they're more prepared, but what's really the reality? What is the foundation of their hope? Was it, oh, I have extra oil with me? No, the foundation of their hope is that I want to be in that wedding. I want to be where Jesus promises. And why do they have that hope? Because of the grace that Jesus first gave to them. Because of the reality that he laid, the foundation that he laid in their lives that gives us this faith that points us to that future. It's not because of something I've done or you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. Through his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he gives us this eternal hope, that he gives us this eternal promise, that he points us to that future. He says, if you have believed in the Son, if you put your hope in what he offers, through his life, through his death, and his resurrection, then your place is forever with God. Because look at the text. As I said before, both the wise and the unwise, they both fell asleep. Both the wise and the unwise, they had to be woken up. They, they're living under similar circumstances. They're on their way to this wedding. But what's different, what distinguishes them, is that their hope has already been grounded in the reality of Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice that he gives for us, in the promise that he has laid for in his death, his burial, and resurrection. They're 
their hope is grounded in his love, in his grace, and in his mercy. Last night, Becca and I uh, watched this movie, and I'm not going to spoil it. She said two things. She said, you've got to use that as an illustration, and don't spoil it. So I'm going to hopefully be faithful on both of those. She'll tell me after I'm done. Uh, but watch this great movie. It's on Amazon Prime. I would highly recommend it to you guys. Uh, it's called 13 Lives. It's about uh, 13, uh, 12 uh, youth soccer players in Thailand, uh, and their coach who got trapped in this cave in 2018. You guys might remember the story I was watching. I was like, oh, I kind of remember this, but I didn't remember how it ends, so I won't tell you how it ends, uh, because it's a really, really fascinating story uh, about how they, they you know, made this mission in to save them. But the point is this. There was, you know, it says at the end of the movie, there was 5,000 people from throughout the world who came in uh, to help out these young boys. There was uh, 17 countries represented there, uh, and, and these boys were stuck in this cave for something like 16, 17 days. And, and it, was, it was only by this team of these expert uh, uh, British divers, these cave divers, they were even able to go in and find them after nine days of being in there. And they found them, and they were all alive, and everyone was excited, but then they had to rescue them. I won't tell you how that happened, because that's really kind of the whole cool part of the story. But it was so interesting, after the rescue was done... The governor of, of the area, he, he made this speech, you know, thanking everyone for what they had done, contributed. And he said, it was out of love for those boys that you all came together and did this. Now, nobody knew them. Nobody, the British divers had never met them before. But he said, it's out of love for those boys that you all came together and you did this. And how much more does Jesus love us? And you think about those boys stuck in that cave, trapped in, in a position which was sure to lead to death. And Jesus Christ, for his love for us, came down from heaven, gave of himself in our place, in order that we might forever be his, in order that we might be his guests at this wedding ceremony, that we might share in his eternity, that we might share in his promise, that we might be rescued from the penalty of sin and death, because we, like the unwise virgins, deserve that. But he says to us, no, I love you, and I'm going to give you my grace. And by that grace, you will live this life of faith. You'll reach out, you'll, you'll take that gift, and you'll live for me. And that's what he calls us to today. He says, do you understand how much I love you? Do you understand how much I've sacrificed for you? Will you come and live this life with me? Let's close in prayer. God, we ask that as we think about your love for us through Christ, that you would truly motivate us this day to live for you, that you would motivate us this day to live lives that are sacrificial, lives that are a reflection of your beauty and your love and your grace to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice, that we can stand on his foundation, that we have lives because he has loved us. Uh, Lord, would you work that faith in those who do not know you? Would you work that faith uh, in us that we might more, those who do know you, that we might more and more serve you with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.